But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This is the word of the Lord. After today, we leave this letter to Corinth, and we'll move on two weeks from today, after Ken Ingram's preaching next weekend, two weeks from today we will be in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So let's remind ourselves about how this letter came to be, since we've spent more than half of this season of the Epiphany in this letter to the church at Corinth. Remember the Roman legions marched on Corinth in the year 146 before the Common Era. They destroyed the city, rounded up all the men, and killed them all, as far as historical records show. They rounded up all the women and children, and after raping and plundering the females, they sold all the women and children into slavery. Grass grew over Corinth for more than a hundred years, a hundred and two to be exact. At that point, Julius Caesar had become head of the Roman government and decided that the original city of Corinth really was built in a strategic place, that it was a great place to have a port city, and he sent retired legionnaires to rebuild the city. And 94 years later, in the year 50 of this common era, Paul walked into the city. began to preach these, to these heathen and pagans that all these gods and goddesses they were worshipping, all of whom related to the old fertility cults, were false. They were nothing. They had no reality except in the people's minds. That in fact there's only one true God, and that this God had now chosen to reveal himself to Gentiles, non-Jews, through the gift of his son, Mary's child, Jesus. Okay. It's interesting to me to note that Paul arrived in the year 50. As best we can determine, he stayed in Corinth 18 to 24 months, then moved on to found other churches. Word began to come to him in these other locales that the church in Corinth was struggling, and he wrote back to them. So scholars believe that he wrote this first letter perhaps late in the year 51, 
perhaps early 52. We believe the oldest of our four Gospels was not written until about the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70. So if Paul is writing in 52 and Mark doesn't write until 70, it means that Paul's letters predate the oldest of the Gospels by about 18 years. And yet what Paul had to say about what happens to us after we die is very much in keeping with the way the gospel writer described what happened to Jesus after he was raised. That is, he had definitely been changed. He could now appear behind locked doors without a key, and yet he was recognizable. Recognizable not at first to some, Mary at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning, not to the two on the way to Emmaus until the breaking of bread, And yet, recognized by Peter, we're told, up at the Sea of Galilee, when he and the others were fishing and saw this lonely figure on the beach preparing breakfast for them. So one who could fix breakfast, one who could break bread at Emmaus, one who could eat fish with them, yet changed. Changed. And Paul is emphasizing in this passage, I believe, the radical nature of death, He is not a Greek. One of the scholars I read this week said, most Christians today are Greeks. They are not Jewish the way Paul was, the way Jesus was, the way the gospel writers, with the exception of Luke perhaps, were Jews, first of all. Greeks talk about a spirit that flits into a body and at death flits away. And that's what most Christians believe, this scholar said. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about for people who really die and people who are given a new resurrection body. Not the same spirit. There really is a break. There really is death. And the only hope we have is in the same God who chose to raise Jesus from the dead. All right, with that, let me see if I can work through this with you. Four things I have underlined. Number one, he first says, The first man was made of dust, and since that time we are all choikos, he says in Greek. Choikos. Scholars have looked for this word in classical Greek literature. In all that we have prior to roughly 52, the year 52 of the Common Era, and they do not find this word anywhere. Paul seems to have coined it himself. It's been translated as dusty, if you would. The first man was made of dust, and everybody since then has been dusty. All die. All die. I was watching that basketball game last night. I was really sorry about what those Longhorns were able to do to us after Blake was hurt. Impressed with how well the rest of the team played. I'm ready for March Madness, aren't you? March Madness is uh, sad in many ways. Every team but one has to finally cry and go home. But it's fun to watch March Madness, these greatest basketball teams in our country. And the college kids usually play really hard, particularly these last ones who get to be in the big tournament. They play really hard. Every time I've watched March Madness, at some point or other in promoting this tournament or in the actual games of the tournament, they show Coach Coach Jimmy B. Remember Jimmy Valvano, coach of the North Carolina State team that won it all in 1983. Valvano, Italian, emotional, 
when his team won, he went running on the field and you can see him almost as if he's looking for every one of his players all at the same time and finding no one at first. He is so beside himself that his team had won. Dick Vitale likes to talk about him. Vitale is Italian also. His name's been changed a little. Vitale would have been his name. Dick Vitale. And he likes to talk about Coach Jimmy V. Jimmy V said that team he coached in 83 was the greatest he ever coached. He said, I'm not sure my team had more talent than any other I had ever coached, but it was an unusual group of young men who just never, ever quit. There were times when we were behind. There were times when it looked like there was no way we could win, but my team never, ever quit. Coach Johnny v, Jimmy V could be funny as well. He said one time in a very close game, he thought one of the referees gave him a really bad call. One of his players was called foul. It wasn't a foul. And he signaled for this referee to come over closer to him. And when the referee got a little bit closer, uh, Coach John, Jimmy V asked, Can you give me a technical for thinking and he said, well, of course not. He said, okay, then I think your officiating stinks. And he said, that'll be on you. And then Coach Jimmy V said, you see, you can't trust him. That's what he said. But ten years after his team won it all, 1993, Coach Jimmy V was battling cancer. And when he received an award for being one of the most outstanding college coaches ever, he said... I'm like my 83 team. I will never, ever quit. I am a man of faith. I'm praying every day. I'm doing everything I'm being told to do. And I promise you this. I will never, ever quit. Even so, he died. And you and I can do the best we can do. Uh, we can practice the best health habits we know. We can have regular checkups, all those kinds of things. But sooner or later, we too will die. We're inviting you to come Wednesday at 12.05 or 6 o'clock and kneel here at the altar and have the ashes affixed to your forehead. Uh, you will find that the ashes we use have been mixed with a little bit of oil so that the feeling is uh, it's a little bit oily but you'll also feel the grit between the thumb of the one who affixes your ashes and your own skin. It feels gritty, uh, dusty, if you would. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Number two, Paul says, we will not all sleep, is what he literally says in Greek. Translators always say die, because that's what he means. We will not all sleep. And what that means for Paul is that he still thinks Jesus is coming soon, very soon. Um, in his oldest letter, the first letter to Thessalonica, uh, Paul was convinced that he would be around when Jesus came back. And you can tell, he's, he's sure. A few have died, but the rest of us will be here when he gets back. But as we move on uh, chronologically through his letters, Paul comes to a time when he's not so sure that he's going to make it. But this is an affirmation of faith when he says, we will not all sleep. Meaning, God is in charge of history. 
and God will bring it to an end when he chooses. I've told you about being in Europe, and if you've had the opportunity to go as well, and when you go to one of the great churches of Europe on a Sunday, so often you find in a large cathedral 15 or 20 people worshiping. But now those who, who, who don't choose to go to church and who choose not to have faith are trying really hard to convince others that there is no God. In our own country, two of the best-selling books last year were written by people who are trying to convince others there is no God. Maurice O'Sullivan has written that uh, recently he was in London, uh, came into Victoria Station. About 18 months ago, uh, Gail and I stayed at a hotel that's right on the corner of Victoria Station. It's very convenient because you can get on a train going anywhere in Great Britain from Victoria Station. You can get on an underground that goes virtually any part of the city of London. You can get on buses. It's a huge bus terminal there at Victoria Station. And if you prefer to ride the double-decker buses or some other, you can get on them from Victoria Station. So he said he had been in London a couple of days, and he had seen these city buses with advertisements on the side. And these ads say, there is probably no God. Relax and enjoy your life. And he had read in one of the London papers that, in fact, this particular ad had put on, been put on more than 800 city buses. There probably is no God. Relax and enjoy your life. Has it come to America yet? Well, as a matter of fact, it has. This week, we will all be hearing about New Orleans and the great excesses of New Orleans for Shrove Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras. Too much eating, too much drinking, probably for some, too much sex with too many of the wrong people, all that sort of thing going on in New Orleans. Not a religious holiday at all for most, for those who stream into the city. But city buses in New Orleans this week leading up to Ash Wednesday have said, similar to those in, in London, do not believe in God, you are not alone. A recent survey shows that the most religious state in our United States, as far as people who say they have a deep faith in God and it affects the way they live every day, Mississippi, number one. But if you want to have religious neighbors, Mississippi is the place you want to go. If you want to have the least religious neighbors, you want to go to Vermont. That in fact, the New England states, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts even, now fewer people profess faith and its importance and relevance in their lives than in California, Oregon, Washington, which has been leading our country in that particular direction. Oklahoma was number nine in most religious. So we're ahead of 42 others, okay? Uh, 41 others, we, we, we are number nine as far as most religious, as far at least as professing our faith. But you see these books about there being no God and now these advertisements on the side of buses in London or New Orleans. You and I turn back to passages like this one where Paul says we will not all sleep. Meaning 
You really should be alert every day. You really should be aware every day that this all still belongs to God. God began all things when God chose, and God will rain down history whenever God chooses, but it will be the action of one true almighty God. Number three. We shall be changed. And he contrasts the body which is buried, cremated, lost at sea, crucified and neglected, Romans often not allowing families to come and take bodies down from crosses, but letting uh, bands of marauding dogs uh, chew at the flesh, tear them apart. Uh, Paul is not talking about a resuscitation of a corpse. He's talking about a real death and a real resurrection. Changed, but related There is a continuity, and he's talking about seeds planted. The seed doesn't look like a seed, an apple, a seed, a tomato. And yet, apple seeds do not make tomatoes, and tomato seeds do not make apples. Uh, There is relationship, there is continuity, but there's real death. And life after death, only if God chooses to make it so. And Paul's already argued, of course, that he does choose to make it so. And that all that we believe and hold dear in our faith has everything to do with with Jesus having been raised. And he having been changed by God's raising him up. Here again, scholars point to the passive voice of these verbs. The body that is sown and the body that is raised, is sown, is raised four times. He uses that just right back to back. Sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, and so on. But raised. If, in fact, our Lord Jesus has been raised, we too shall be raised. One of the great preachers uh, in our country for years was Dr. Carlisle Marney. Dr. Marnie was a Baptist preacher, but a liberal Baptist preacher. One of the most liberal Baptist uh, churches done in Texas was the first Baptist church in Austin. Dr. Marnie pastored that great church for years and then was invited to Charlotte over in the Carolinas uh, at Myers Park, one of the great Baptist churches. Uh, Again, uh, liberal for some Baptists, smoked a pipe all of his adult life. The fact that he smoked uh, gave him sort of a deep, deep voice when he spoke. He sounded like God. I had the opportunity to hear him on several different occasions. One of those was at Perkins School of Theology, SMU. He was invited to come and give the most prestigious preaching lectureship uh, uh, in, in that series. Uh, they've had some of the greatest in the world uh, now for almost a 100 years. Dr. Marnie was one of those. I heard each of his presentations, all of them, and uh, he was so powerful in talking about faith, about hope, about love, about God's revealing himself in his son Jesus. But he came to the end of his fourth presentation, the very last one, and then said, I'm really clear about what I believe. 
I'm really clear about what God has done, except one little part sometimes gives me trouble. There are days when I don't understand our being raised from the dead. There are some days when I just have trouble believing in the resurrection. And he sat down. People sat up and applaud, stood and applauded what wonderful presentations these were. But a couple of years later, I heard Dr. Carlisle Marney preach to the preachers of the Texas Annual Conference. And he was introduced at our big camp up at Lakeview that Friday evening with this introduction. The person introducing him said, I heard Dr. Marney two years ago at Perkins School of Theology. I don't think I've ever heard a greater preacher in my whole life. He was absolutely terrific. And we all applauded him and he stepped up to preach. And then he said, maybe I should tell you what happened right after the last presentation at Perkins. When I had made my closing statement and the final prayer was given, I walked off the stage, backstage, behind the curtains. And when I got there, Albert Outler was standing there and his face was red. He was livid. Now, you have to understand who Albert Outler was. Perkins School of Theology really gained credibility when they were able to lure Albert Outler from Yale Divinity School to a, a seminary in the Deep South, in Dallas, Texas. And when Albert Outler agreed to come to Dallas, Texas, it was much easier then to recruit other great scholars to come to Dallas. It really made our seminary there when Albert Outler came. He was reputed to be one of the greatest perhaps the best Wesleyan scholar in the world during his lifetime. He was also well-versed in church history. Uh, the Roman Catholics invited him to Rome during Vatican II uh, and III. He was a translator. His translation of the works of St. Augustine, still one of the best known in all the world, a really outstanding scholar. And Marnie said, when I got backstage, here was Albert Outler right in my face saying, that's the weakest end to a sermon I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe you said there are days you don't believe in the resurrection. And Marnie said, I responded to him, well, I was just trying to be honest. There are days when I don't understand, don't quite grasp the resurrection. And Albert Outler said, who ever told you you have to believe in the resurrection every day? And Marnie said, I looked at him and said, well, if not every day, then when? And Albert Outler said, only twice. On the day you die and the day you die with somebody. And Carlisle Marnie said, I've been to cemeteries almost a thousand times. And I can tell you on every one of those days, I believe in the resurrection. Paul says, if Christ has been raised, passive voice, God has done this, then we shall also be raised. And if so, it will be the action of God. Number four. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, we shall be raised and be given this new body. 
like the first, not like the first. No longer perishable, no longer weak, no longer dishonored, if you would. No longer naked, stripped of all of its value and worth. But this glorious new body raised. I told you last Sunday that I was going to drive down to Texas to preach Sunday night. Um, I got there in plenty of time, really. I was there about ten after six, service in begins at seven. And so I had time to go see my mother. This was my hometown. Uh, nine Methodist churches in Panola County, Texas. One of them, the one I grew up in, one of them, my first appointment while I was 18 years old until I was 24. But it was being held in the largest church in the county, which is First Methodist in Carthage, Texas. Not the one where I grew up, but the one where I've been any number of times when I was growing up for special occasions and youth meetings and all that sort of thing. So I was looking forward to it. I was also, you know, a little apprehensive about seeing people, some of whom I haven't seen in 50 years. I got there in time to go by and see my mother. And so at 10 after 6, I I rushed by the, the home where she lives now and had about 20 minutes or so with her. And then I went on to church. And I did see a lot of people whom I'd known years ago. Some of them I see occasionally, but Almost never, because when Gail and I go down to check on my mother, we see my mother, my brother, and his wife, my sister, and her husband, and that's about it. We come back to Tulsa. I got to see these pastors of all nine churches, and one of them went to high school with me. His name is Mervyn Scott. I knew the Scott family well. They were dairy farmers. It was a fairly large family. And they milked cows every morning and they milked cows late every evening. They were hard-working people, really hard-working people, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Three sons became Methodist preachers. One of them became a seminary professor. The other two, pastors there in the Texas conference. The older one, Donald, of the two that stayed there in Texas, went to the church that I'd pastored as a student. And was offered other appointments through the years. He said, no, this is where he felt God wanted him to be. And he pastored that little church for almost 30 years. Preaching to 60 people, 65, Sunday after Sunday. Well, guess what? His younger brother Mervyn decided to do the same. He was appointed to a little church called Deadwood. That's the name of it. Deadwood United Methodist Church. And he's been there almost 30 years. I ran track with him in high school. I ran quarter mile. He ran the mile event. Uh, quiet, sort of shy, I felt when we were growing up. Became a Methodist preacher and has pastored at Deadwood all these years. But my brother had sent me an email before I went down there last Sunday saying that Mervyn had buried four members of his family in the last two years. Four members of his family in the last two years. And the fourth one was his wife, Linda. When I saw him, He looked paler to me. He looked thinner to me. But the last night was his turn to give the closing prayer. And it was wonderful. Same deep faith. Same deep conviction that we have buried our dead. Believing with all our hearts that God will raise them and give them a body as he has chosen. In some sense, a continuation of the person that we will know and be known. 
On the way home, it was raining, just like light mist. Um, it was drizzling when I got to the parking lot to get in my car. I was 315 miles from home. It had been a long day, a long series. For me, I'd preached five times in 48 hours. Um, long drive by myself. Uh, drizzling rain. The streets, highways, just a little bit slippery because of this drizzling rain. Not enough to wash them clean, just to make them slick. I started driving. Now, when one gets to Paris, Texas, and starts to get on the Indian Nation Turnpike, you certainly get into a dead zone. As far as stations are concerned, radio stations. I'd been uh, trying to find talk programs so that, you know, sort of keep me stimulated as I went along. Uh, if people are talking back and forth, that sort of helps, it seems to me. So I'd been listening to these stations, and suddenly I got north of Paris, and my radio was picking up nothing but static. And I punched the scan button, and it went all through the AM stations, and I was getting nothing but static. And I pushed scan on FM, and it went through all the stations, and I was getting nothing but static. So I pushed the button for my CD. My changer has six CDs in it. I hadn't listened to it for quite some time because here in Tulsa there there is a wonderful classical music station, which is my preference. I listen to it or NPR, one or the other, every time I'm in my car. And so I flipped on the CD player, and guess which one of the six came on? Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah. Indian Nation Turnpike is pretty deserted. One o'clock in the morning. 1.30, pretty deserted. Occasionally you pass a truck, a truck passes you. But even at most of the roadside parks, there'll be 10 or 12 huge 18-wheel trucks parked for the night. And I'm listening to Handel's Messiah. Foreign to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. It goes on and the soprano finally sings, rejoice, rejoice. And then the big bass voice sings, the trumpet shall sound. And this little piccolo trumpet, it's about this long, was just screaming on this wonderful record. The trumpet was sounding. And we shall be raised. And we shall be raised. Incorruptible. Imperishable. In power. In glory. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet.